This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell for the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Patrick Carlone, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you, Cheryl. So we are talking, we are still in COVID land and we're talking via Zoom and Patrick's down in Melbourne and I know we're all thinking about our fellow Victorians. He's here to talk to us about, and I'm super excited about this podcast just because I have been following the story. The book is called Lawyer X and I'm going to introduce Patrick. He's been a senior features writer at the Herald Sun for a decade. He has won two Walkley Awards for feature writing, one for his coverage of the Black Saturday fires, the other for his account of a war medic in Afghanistan. He and Anthony Dowsley shared the Gold Quill Award, among other awards, from the Melbourne Press Club in 2018 for their investigation into Nicola Gobbo. Is that how I pronounce her name? That's right, yeah. Yeah, Gobbo. Published earlier this month, the book is Lawyer X. It details this true crime investigation that rewrote the story of Melbourne's infamous gangland war and triggered a royal commission. I mean, it is such an extraordinary story. So uh, I want to start from the beginning. Who was Nicola Gobbo? Nicola Gobbo uh, was raised in a nice part of Melbourne, a place called Kew, and went to a, a very good Catholic girls' school called Genazzano College. Now, her family had come out from Italy a couple of generations earlier and her uncle was a Supreme Court judge, uh, Sir James Gobbo, who went on to become uh, governor of Victoria in about 2000. And look, it was a legal family. A lot of her cousins, uh, uh, Sir James's children, uh, went on to be lawyers. He was a, you know, an esteemed figure, uh, very uh, dignified, very held in very high regard. And she grew up, as she puts it, she grew up with a, a strong social conscience and sort of a desire to be a lawyer from a very early age. Mm. It's interesting that that was her desire and where she's ended up. But, you know, for those that don't know the story, just give me an overview of Lawyer X, the book. I'll do my best, Cheryl. And then uh, I'm going to pick it to bits after that. No, that's fine. <laughs> Nicola Gobbo went to Melbourne Uni, got a law degree, uh, very quickly gained a reputation and a name because during the time that she began as a lawyer and then a barrister, the gangland war erupted in Melbourne. Now, this was basically a turf war between competing drug lords. And, and, and look, there's, Melbourne's always had a very strong underworld. Mostly. And do you think that's exclusive to Melbourne and why? I, I think the Melbourne version of it is, is, is different and distinctive. Yeah. Um, look, it all happened off the docks. It goes back to the painters and dockers union back in the 50s and they looked after their own. Uh, there's a lot of unsolved murders going back to that era when, you know, someone would get shot on the docks and there'd be 40 blokes standing around, some of them splattered in blood, and they all said that they didn't see a thing, you know, when the police came to investigate. Um, uh, so there's a rich history of violence surrounding drugs 
and that and those sorts of industries. Uh, in the 90s, you had the advent, if you want to put it that way, of ecstasy. Uh, you had the, the growth of uh, speed and those party type drugs. And that was a booming market for these types who were sort of trafficking drugs. Uh, now, a vendetta, uh, you can ask me questions, but a vendetta basically triggered the gangland war in about 2000. Nicola Gobbo came to represent all those big drug lords who came to Okay, be- so was it, so what I want to just clarify, so it was a drug war between Carl Williams. Yes. And? And the Moran family. And the uh, Moran family. And they went back to the painters and dockers. So it was between Carl Williams and the Moran family. Remind me how Mockbell fits in. Well, Tony Mockbell was another big drug trafficker. He was on good terms, uh, yeah, uh, cooperative terms with Carl Williams. Uh, if you think of warlords, you know, protecting their own turf. And, you know, it's a violent business. Uh, debts were claimed. Uh, vendettas arose all the time. And there's probably, you have Tony Mockbell, Carl Williams, the Moran family, uh, and another big hitter, if you want to put it that way, in this, in this world called the Carlton Crew. Um, now, they were drug lords, and they each had hitmen to protect their interests, and it erupted in a way that was sort of uh, unparalleled compared to what had come before. And at the same time, I'll just make the point, it, it took on a, a, a grisly type of um, celebrity. Uh, Carl Williams became a, a, a sort of household name, Tony Mockbell and, and another player, Mick Gatto. He went on to write a book, that, you know, yeah. and, to, and talk about, you know, what had so happened. the Moran wife. What was her name? Uh, Judith Moran wrote a book. Yeah, because uh, do you know what? Yeah. I promoted that. <laughs> I was working for Random House at the time that that came out. I think she went on to be uh, charged and convicted of murder, didn't she, Cheryl? Yeah, um, she did. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But my, my recollection, the, the Mick Gatto book came out in about 2010 and sold yeah. bazillions. Um, and he, he gets stopped on the street to sign his autograph. Like, he really is a, a figure around town, but he's also sort of wrapped up in this whole gangland tapestry, which sort of went from, you know, basically 2000 to about 2010. Um, now, I, I don't think you're going to solve this, Patrick, but I'm always intrigued, and, of course, I've watched a lot of the Scorsese films and lots of other drug films since. What was that one that was in Cuba with Al Pacino? Gosh, uh, Scarface. Or... Scarface, particularly mm. violent. Mm. But I, it's always self-perpetuating. Does it really always end badly? Pretty much. Um, it does, doesn't it? If you go to another Scorsese film, um, uh, Goodfellas, and that, yes. in, that involved a, a Henry Hill, who was one of the mob, who sort of turned in the end and, and you know, helped out the FBI. He was, a, he was a good result, and I sort of liken him to Nicola Gobbo in the book because in the end he, had, he got a new identity, had to move away, had to start a new life you know, under a new name driving a, a you know a, a two-tone station wagon and, and being a, a nobody uh, in the world. Uh, and that's probably the best result for a lot of these people. Most of the gangland players in Melbourne um, either got killed or ended up in jail. Yeah. And Nicola Gobbo played a big part in all of that. Okay, we're going to get to her. Mm. But I, I do think that's extraordinary because, you know, like in terms of business, what is it that makes people turn on each other? What is it that creates the violence? What is it that creates the distrust? Is it just greed or is it because we're dealing with characters that don't have any business sense? I mean, why can't they just run these, you know, um, these 
underground businesses as underground businesses. Why do we have to get yes. into violence? It's interesting, well, isn't it? Well, Carl Williams actually said uh, at one point, we can all get on together. There's enough to go around. We, we yeah. can do this in a way that we're all rich, we're all happy. That sort of, it, it was almost a Pollyanna type sort of thought coming from a, a man who went on to kill 10 people or up to 10 people, I should say. But greed, obviously, is the, is the massive thing. And, and the thing about drugs, it is one of the biggest industries in Australia. It's illegal, highly illegal, but there is so much money to be made. And a lot of the people who are at the top of the tree were taking drugs, so they were you know, slightly paranoid, pretty punchy-type personalities. I would argue that they weren't stupid. You don't get to the top of those trees without being savvy and having a, a very good, if misguided, business sense in, in how to make money. It's a high-risk game. Um, the police could pick you up at any time and put you in jail for 20 years or 30 years, uh, or your competitor might, you know, get a grudge up and kill you mm-hmm. in your driveway or at a football clinic or in the gutter. Or in your van when you're waiting. What was that, that, that where he was waiting? That was Jason Moran, yes. He was killed in, in front of his children. His children exactly. were in the car at a football yeah. clinic with hundreds of kids on a Saturday morning. And that probably... Uh, was the turning point in the whole gangland sort of understanding that that's when Melbourne, who sort of prides itself on being the world's most livable city, we keep winning that um, award, at that point Melbourne said, enough, this has got to stop because the killings were mounting and they were happening more, they were more and more brazen. Um, and, you know, in that instance, kids' lives were directly, I mean, kids could have got shot easily that day you know, by accident and that's when, Melbourne said enough and that's when Victoria Police actually launched a massive task force which continues to this day to try and stem the blood and end the gang, what was known as the gangland war. I remember when that, that killing happened and, it, you know, it was truly awful whether you're a criminal or not, but I remember Judith Moran just being so devastated and really playing the grieving mum. But, mm. you know, should you not have known if you were in that business that something like this was likely? Well, Judith's a good example because, you know, Jason, her son, died in 2003 in this incident we're talking about. Her other son, Mark, he died in 2000, killed uh, in the street outside of his house. Judith's ex, ex-husband at that point, Lewis, was killed in 2004, I think, in a pub. And these are all part of the gangland uh, 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 touchstones, if you want to put it that way. She lost three very close family members in a very short space of time. And But as, as we said, she went on herself and then sort of convicted of murder. It is a different world. It's a parallel. It's a, a, I think of it as a parallel sort of universe where you know, and Carl Williams would get on radio at times and talk about, you know, being upstanding and, and a righteous type sort of fellow. So it sort of had this edge. Everybody was interested in it. Everybody was talking about gangland as it was taking place um, in the 2000s. Um, a, a very unusual set of circumstances that sort of led to its perch. in the the community's thinking. And I think we said that um, just before we started recording, but it has parallels with Blue Murder and Roger Rogerson and all that violence that happened because that was pre to that, wasn't it? That was in New South Wales uh, in the 80s and 90s. But here in Victoria, uh, we've always, it was perpetuated that we had a very clean police force, which was a total nonsense. And gangland actually got started in some respects because of uh, corrupt cops were actually you know, being greedy themselves. They were skimming things. They were taking the drugs off the baddies and then selling them themselves, to put it very simply. And that sort of led the, the prosecution of those bent police officers actually 
amplified the gangland environment and made it easier for the Tony Mockbells and Carl Williamses to parade around town in their black Mercedes while at the same time dealing tens of millions of dollars of drugs. So how does a, a girl brought up, you know, went to a Catholic school, brought up in a good, you know, parents, legal backgrounds, you know, great stock, end up embroiled in this to a level that's quite shocking? Well, she was different to the rest of the family. I mean, that's, that's fairly obvious. And even back at school, I, I went to a nearby school and I knew a lot of, I didn't know Nicola Gobbo, but I'm the same age as her. And I knew a lot of her schoolmates and uh, she was different to them. She'd be going to nightclubs uh, very early on, talking about her sexual exploits with celebrities. And these are you know, pretty clean cut Catholic girls. And she enjoyed the notoriety of that. Uh, certainly. She sort of lived a double life. She's an excellent student, very, very intelligent, uh, had these very conventional dreams. And at the same time, she actually enjoyed notoriety, uh, which becomes clearer as the pattern as you go on through her life. While she was at Melbourne University, she hooked up with a man uh, who was trafficking drugs. And that led to a police raid in 1993, where she she owned the house where the drugs were found. And uh, as a consequence of that, she pleaded guilty to possession and sort of got, got away with it, if you want to put it that way. Well, she must have got away with it because she ended up being a solicitor. Well, that's right. And she had to, she basically had to mislead and lie uh, yes. in actually being accepted as a solicitor uh, through the course of those events. But in 1995, that man was still hanging around. And that, as a law student, I think a, you know, probably a fourth year law student, she actually became a police informer for the first time without her knowledge in trying to get her ex-boyfriend put away in jail. And that's when she first uh, met police officers. And, th- and it led to the next, you know, until this day, basically, this, uh, relation- this very cosy relationship with the police. Um, at the same time, as she comes to represent the criminals who are determined not to be put away by these same police officers. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So how did she get into this group of people? After she... represent? Well, after she uh, qualified as a lawyer, she went and worked for uh, a solicitor who's very well known. We can't name him because of suppression orders and things. Very colourful criminal uh, solicitor who looked after the likes of Tony Mockbell, Tony Mockbell's brothers who were big players in gangland, uh, another massive drug player, John Higgs, and this is in the late 90s. And she came to be introduced to them, certainly, as a 25-year-old, fresh out of law school, uh, who had a history of informing, if you like that. So 
look, the obvious way to think of Nicola Gobbo is as a defence barrister who turned to informing. I actually look at it the other way, having you know, studied this for years. I actually think she was informing before she got uh, qualified as a lawyer. And she was actually an informer who used the cloak of a defence barrister to actually pursue her, her true calling, if you want to call it that, of informing to police. Tell me what the value of that is as an informer. Is it a paid gig? I mean, what uh, is the value of that? Well, look, she's, she's a one-off. Uh, most people turn to informing because they're, they're coerced by the police. You know, you're going to go to jail for 20 years, right. but if you help us, out, we'll put in a good word for you. I mean, it's, it's, that's the very simple way of it. So most informers don't choose to do it. They don't want to do it. It's just about self-preservation more than anything else. She wondered at it, if you like, uh, before she even became a barrister. She wanted to do a PhD thesis looking at police informing and the ethics of it. And by the turn of the century, she'd been a barrister for two years at that point. She'd been a, a registered informer with Victoria Police twice by that point. She thrilled to the, the knowledge and the accumulation of that knowledge that she could then sort of spread as she saw fit. So that was certainly driving her. Uh, look, she's a terribly complicated character. I mean, yeah, I um, just wonder even back then how she slept at night. I mean, that is terrifying. It's like worse than falling off a roller coaster. Well, even in her first job, she's a first year solicitor. She wasn't even a barrister yet. And she would go to work and tell her work colleagues that she thought uh, her home was bugged because the red light on the microwave was flashing in a strange way. She has been described as a Walter Mitty type character. And I'm not, I'm not suggesting that that's the start and the end of it. But she was fascinated and obsessed and driven in a way that uh, defies logic, common sense and, and self-preservation as well. And she went on to have a family as well, didn't she? Much later on, yes. She's, she's got two children. I think the first a daughter was born in 2013. Mm-hmm. Uh, but by that stage, I mean, she had lived with death threats on, at times on a daily basis over many years. And she's in hiding now. Uh, I don't know where she is and I'm not allowed to tell you if I did. No. As I said, she's got that Henry Hill type sort of existence to look forward to, uh, looking over her shoulder for the rest of her life. Whether she's living under her own name, I don't know. It's Uh, a terrible thing to do to your family. It's okay to put yourself in that, but, you know, once you have children. Anyway, she obviously didn't think that one through. So the story that you were following, who were she, who were her clients at the time when she started this lot of informing? Uh, look, it goes back to the gangland sort of explosion of, of interest. Uh, she represented Carl Williams, uh, Tony Mockbell. Uh, I mean, Mick- surely they'd want her dead. Well, it's interesting because Carl Williams, uh, I don't know how much you know about his history, but he got convicted of murder in 2005, I think, or six, and then went on to plead guilty to three more. So he, he was doomed to 37 years in jail until he was killed. Yeah. in jail very violently in 2010. But he worked it out. He actually worked out that his own lawyer was working against his best interests and actually kicked up. you got these handwritten letters that are fascinating to read uh, because it's in a very sort of colloquial, you know, sort of knockabout sort of language. He's actually spelling out what he thinks his lawyer has done to hurt his interests. And he got ignored. He, he sent these letters off to judges, to the legal boards and the state government. And they all, because he was so discredited, they all, no, no one sort of took him seriously. But he actually worked around in 2006. 
the contrast to that is the likes of Tony Mockbell, who was friends with Carl Williams, who continued to be represented by her on and off and to talk with her at least till 2012. Uh, at the time, he was getting sentenced to you know, uh, 20 or 30 years in jail. Yeah. Uh, so he, he knew she was whiffy, if you want to put it that way, and sort of wondered at where her motivations lay, but he still used her as a lawyer. So she had this wonderful ability to convince people. She was a... In, there was a Royal Commission that's still going last year and she was asked straight out, uh, how long have you been a spectacularly good liar for? And she said, well, up until 2010. Uh, but she, she didn't disagree with the notion that she had led a, an existence that was based on lies entirely and threatened her safety all the time. So what's interesting to me is why well, that's that's what everyone wants to know. That's the big question. Um, the simple answer is I could spend another 10 years researching all of this and I still wouldn't know exactly uh, what her motivations were. Look, she's eager to please. She's very eager to be important. She grew up wanting to be the first female Prime Minister and a lot of her aspirations were, as I said, very conventional. Uh, she wanted to be a judge. She, she wanted probably to be a, could have been all of that. She could have been all of those. Uh, she, look, I'm not saying she would have been Prime Minister, but she could have been. She could have gone into politics and done extremely well. Well, uh, Trump's up there. <laughs> <laughs> I, she could have. <laughs> I dare say she'd be better than Donald Trump. Um, very gregarious, very intelligent, uh, the life of the party, Everything was in her favour, except yeah. it was all built on this secret that she created for herself from the day she became, from before the day she became a lawyer. And I think she has admitted that she liked accumulating the power, she liked the, the close proximity with police officers, and she liked being trusted and needed by the baddies like Tony Mockbell. She cared about that as well. When I first heard heard about her and heard about the story, and it was a little while ago now, I thought, was she doing it because she has, had a social conscious? She decided that she, you know, this was justice and this was the right thing to do, but she wasn't, was she? No. Look, she she has used that, that altruistic label to sort of yeah. defend her behaviour. Uh, I think the more you look at it and the closer you get to it, the less you can take that seriously. She took Tony Mockbell's money as his lawyer for a long time. He really does fit the the stereotype drug baron, you know, very demanding, very paranoid, very concerned about his best interests, very greedy. And he asked her to do things as a lawyer that was, you know, unethical when one of his henchmen would get arrested he'd send her in to represent that henchman but uh, the driving motivation was to ensure that the henchman didn't roll on him and as a lawyer that's terribly unethical and she felt bad about that and there's no doubt at all that she felt terrible about having to do that sort of work and she got to the point where instead of walking away she thought no I'm going to I'm going to get Tony Mockbell out of my life so I will inform against Tony Mockbell to police Oh, so you think that was the motivation there? It was one of the motivations, certainly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, look, it's interesting. She had a stroke uh, at the age of 32. Just, oh, you're you know, not surprised. Stress. <laughs> totally out of the blue, you know, a, a serious stroke. She woke up and she couldn't speak, went to hospital, you know, spent time in hospital. At that point, and this has been put to her many times, why didn't you walk away? You're in so deep. You've got a medical condition that would gives you an exit pass from this life and from this danger. 
Instead, she had every gangland criminal from around Melbourne huddled around her bed while she's recovering. And at the same time, she's talking on her mobile phone during that same period to police informing against those men who came to present her with flowers in hospital. It's um, amazing she wasn't killed at that time, that none of them cottoned on to it. And it's staggering that she's still alive, absolutely. Really is, yeah. mm. uh, is she an addict? An addict, did you say? Yeah. Uh, look, she got hooked on uh, uh, one of the consequences of, uh, of the stroke was a terrible neuralgia. Um, which I've, I've suffered from time to time at, at his agony, and she did actually get hooked on. Uh, hooked may not be the right word, but was using very powerful painkillers. Uh, but I, to be fair, no, she wasn't. She wasn't sort of into illicit drugs. She wasn't sort of imbibing, you know, these terrible things, and it wasn't affecting her judgment. No, she she didn't. She wasn't into drugs. Right. or illicit drugs at least at all. So, I mean, we've got to finish off shortly, but I just want to, just for our listeners, so they're her clients, that's one thing, right, and she is um, informing on them, but also she's a solicitor. I mean, she's breaking a couple of ethical... Yeah, she's breaking every ethical... Look, the starting point, and look at it... She's a lawyer as well as an informant. Well, everyone, I think it's... Everyone understands legal professional privilege or a version of it. you just got to watch law and order. And yes. the assumption is that if you speak to your lawyer, what you tell them is confidential. And the assumption is that your lawyer will do their best to provide you with advice that serves you as, as well as you can be served. But almost from day one, she ignored those two very basic things in a way that was brazen. Uh, Victoria Police accepted it in a way that was unethical, described as reprehensible by the High Court. And the interesting thing is, Cheryl, that you know, Anthony, Anthony, my co-author and myself, have been looking at this for years and years. There, there, we cannot find another case anywhere in the world where a lawyer has set out to put their own clients in jail. What do the police think? Well, the police are in a lot of trouble because a lot of these you know, detectives going up to a former Chief Commissioner here in Victoria, Simon Overland, oversaw this very wholesale systemic use of her as an informer, which went on for years and years. The Royal Commission's been sitting last year and this year, and that's just come out with recommend, uh, provisional recommendations, let's say, which suggests that a lot of these police officers are, uh, may be guilty of professional misconduct, which is a, a serious charge. Um, yeah. can land you 10 years in jail, I think. Uh, so you're looking at a former Chief Commissioner, of Victoria Police, who's wrapped up in this from the start. It's such an extraordinary story. It's such a good book. It's called Lawyer X. I mean, I highly recommend it if you haven't read it. And, and you know, as you said, Patrick, it's unique. It's a unique scenario and just so intriguing. Congratulations. It's a really good book. Thank you so much for speaking with us today. My pleasure, Cheryl. Thank you. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere. Or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBookstore. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. 
Belinda. We're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.